the, the, if you go to the next slide, the, uh, the, the truth that uh, we want to think about is the fact that we live out of our hearts. Uh, it's out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is a wellspring of life. Uh, we live from our hearts. All the hopes, the dreams, and the aspirations of the person reside within the heart. And from the heart, they, they set the course of life for us. Wonderful. So if we think about the heart a little bit, um, just some activities of the heart that, uh, that, that we want to focus on. Uh, if you take the classical definition of the person, mind, emotions, will, all those activities are directed by the heart. Because uh, the Bible uses the word heart in a very different way than we use it in common parlance. In common parlance, we think about the heart as uh, emotions, feelings, uh, tenderness, and we think of the mind as the cool, rational, reasoning part of us, and we say, have a heart, we mean be tender with me, be understanding, give me a break, don't be too hard on me. The Bible does not use the word heart in that way. The Bible uses the word heart to describe the center core of our being. It's the command center of life. We live out of our hearts. It's the wellspring. If you trace the stream of life back to its source, you get to the heart because the heart is the wellspring of life. So if we think about that classical definition of the person, mind, emotions, will, all these are activities of the heart. We think with our hearts. God flooded the world because the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. We remember with our hearts. Uh, Moses says to Israel, remember these words of mine, fix them in your hearts. We know with our hearts. Again, Moses to Israel in Deuteronomy, know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. We discern with our hearts. A discerning heart acquires knowledge. The Proverbs reminds us. Uh, we store things in our hearts. Remember David's words, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. We see with our hearts. We make connections with our hearts. Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that the eyes of your heart would be opened, that you'd see the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. We meditate with our hearts. May the words of my mouth, Psalm 19, and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. We ponder in our hearts. Remember Mary, she has all these things she's learning about her son Jesus, and she ponders them in her heart. All these we think of as cognitive activities. The Bible says they're activities of the heart. And of course, uh, <clears throat> emotional activities certainly flow from the heart. We fear with our hearts. Uh, remember Saul, before that final battle, he goes to the witch of Endor. Uh, the, uh, Samuel prophesies through the witch that he will die with his sons in the battle of the next day. When he sees the Philistine troops gathering in battle formation, he was afraid and terror filled his heart. We fear with our hearts. We grieve with our hearts. God says to Eli, the priest in Shiloh, you've not restrained your sons. You've let them desecrate my sacrifices and abuse my people. All of your sons will fill your heart with grief and your eyes with tears. We love God and we love others with our heart. That's the summary of the law. Uh, we love with our hearts. We hate with our hearts. Remember when David's coming to the city of God, dancing before the Ark of the Covenant, his wife watching him despised him in her heart. We hate with our hearts. Uh, we lust with our hearts. The warning in Proverbs 6 about the wayward woman, do not lust in your heart after her beauty. Our hearts get filled with pride. Hezekiah's heart was filled with pride. God humbled him with the pride of his heart. We rejoice with our hearts. Rejoice, make music in your heart to the Lord, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 5. And of course, um, volitional activities are activities of the heart as well. It's with the heart that we seek God. My heart says of you, seek your face 
Your face, O Lord, I will seek. We give with our hearts. Everyone should give what he's decided in his heart to give. We repent with our hearts. The sacrifices of God are broken and contrite heart. Uh, We believe with our hearts. It's with the heart, Romans 10, that man believes and is saved. And of course, the promise of the new covenant is a promise of a changed heart, a transformed heart. I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now, you know, it's a little slippery when we talk about the heart because the heart cannot be trusted. One of the worst pieces of advice we could give people is just follow your heart because your heart will lie to you. Your heart will tell you things are true that are not true. My heart's been telling me recently I need a new pickup truck. (laughs) My wife is telling me I can't trust my heart. Uh, Your heart will lie to you. It won't tell you the truth. Now, this truth is written throughout the Word of God. If I had time, we could go to all kinds of Old Testament passages that talk about the heart and the importance of the heart. Remember when David goes to anoint, uh, or Samuel goes to anoint David to be the king, and his brother comes in. He's tall, he's handsome. David thinks, this must be the man. And God says to him, pay no attention to his stature or his appearance, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things man looks at, Man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. What God, what's God concerned with? God is concerned with the heart. That has tremendous implications for what we do with our kids because it takes, it takes parenting away from just management, managing, controlling behavior, making sure they're in the right place at the right time with the right attitude. It, it takes it away from all that and really puts the focus of parenting on nurture. I'm shepherding the heart of this kid because he lives out of his heart. The heart is the wellspring of life. That truth we find throughout the scripture. And in, in, of course, it's, it's in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might remember when uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's that largest sermon we have of Christ in the New Testament. Uh, the heart is one of the reoccurring themes. It's there in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Later, Uh, Jesus talks about treasure. He says, whatever your treasure owns your heart, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And and you might remember when Jesus applies the law in the sermon, he applies the law in terms of the heart. So he says, you think of murder as killing someone and being caught with all the evidence against you. But I tell you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Do you see what Jesus has done with the law? He's taken it out of just the external, observable, behavioral, and he's put it inside. And he says, when I give my heart to that which God forbids, I have broken the law of God, even if I haven't acted on it. You remember in the sermon, he does the same thing with adultery. He says, you can commit adultery from across the room if you look at a woman to lust after her. You have committed adultery with her already. Where? In your heart. Do you see the power of what Jesus is doing with the law? What he's pointing out to us is the law is not just, it's not, the law is not just a matter of matching up with external observable behavior. The law is designed to be applied to our hearts so that we're, our hearts are transformed by the grace and power of the gospel. And of course, that theme we find throughout the ministry of Christ. Uh, passages like uh, Matthew 15, uh, Mark chapter 7, uh, there, uh, he, Jesus is talking about the heart. It's one of these themes that we find again and again reoccurring in the ministry of Christ. Uh, you might remember uh, 
uh, might not know this story in, in Mark chapter 7, but the, the background of the story is that the Pharisees have come to Jesus with accusations against the disciples. And they've said, your disciples have defiled themselves because they've eaten <clears throat> without going through a ceremonial washing. Therefore, they're defiled through what they've eaten. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Do you remember his words? He says, these Pharisees, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are just rules made up by men. And the disciples are somewhat shocked by the forcefulness of Christ rebuking the Pharisees. And they come to him after the dust has settled and the Pharisees are gone. And they say, Master, connect the dots for us. Help us to understand this. And this is what Jesus says. He says, are you so dull? I'm beginning with verse 18 uh, <clears throat> in Mark 7. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make him unclean? That was the accusation of the Pharisees. Your disciples are defiled through what they have eaten. And he says, you're not defiled by what you eat. <coughs> what you eat passes through you. It doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach and then out of the body. Then he goes on, he says, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Can we change one word for our purposes? It's what comes out of a child that makes him unclean. Uh, because Man is being used here generically to describe all of humanity, men, women, boys, girls. We're all embraced in that word man and its use here. So we could say with equal authority, it's what comes out of a child that makes him unclean. For from within, out of children's hearts, come evil thoughts, <clears throat> sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside, Jesus says, and make a child unclean. Now, many of these things are things you see in your kids. Do you ever see any envy at your house? Did you ever hear these words? It's not fair. I mean, it's not fair is an envy statement, isn't it? Someone else has an advantage I don't have. It's not fair. One of our kids was gone overnight to visit a friend. He came home the next day. He was only home for about five minutes when he announced, I get to have ice cream today. So why do you think you should have ice cream today? You guys had ice cream last night when I was gone. No, I couldn't believe it. This kid came home, he checks the box of ice cream to see if any ice cream was missing. <clears throat> and he asserted his right to ice cream. Now they never come home and say, hey, you had ice cream last night. Good for you. I'm so happy for you. I hope you ate it all. That's wonderful. Now I get ice cream today. You had ice cream last night. It's not fair. We see that in kids, don't we? Or greediness. When I was pastoring, my grandsons would always meet me in the foyer after my sermons. They wanted to go to my office with me, not to pray over my good sermon, but because they knew in my office I had this large jar of M&Ms, and they wanted some M&Ms. I would take them in. I can promise you there was never a time when one of those little boys reached in and took one M&M. You know what they did. They buried their hand in the jar. They took as many as their grubby little hands could hold and they'd shove them in their pockets to try to get more before I put the lid back on. We see these things in kids or, or malicious behavior. One of our grandsons wrote this narrative about himself. His brother built a castle out of Legos. He kicked it, knocked it down. His brother told his mother what he had done. His mother's... Uh, uh, he lied to his mother and told his mother he just stumbled into it by accident. His mother scolded his brother for not being more understanding of his clumsiness. 
he got away with this lie. Malicious behavior, we see that in kids sometimes. Kids doing mean things to each other just for the joy of being mean. You think, why would you do that to your brother? How does it benefit you to knock something? He was taking joy in that. Why didn't you just leave him alone? But there's that malicious behavior we see sometimes in our kids or lewdness. Now, not every kid is lewd, but I'll bet there's a parent or two here who has a lewd child, one of these kids that picks up every double entendre. I remember teaching a group of nine-year-old boys one time. I used the word buttress. Oh, this one kid thought that was just a great word because it sounded like a private body part to him. So he was, the rest of the day, he's saying, buttress, buttress. <laughs> he's poking the other boys and laughing. And he turned a perfectly good word into something prurient. Or we see uh, slander. My kids used to come to me slandering their brothers and sisters. Daddy, brother's not being nice to me. I used to ask him, help me understand, why are you telling me this? Would you like us to pray for your brother? We can do that. I'm sure he'd appreciate our prayers. You're not trying to get him in trouble, are you? You wouldn't do that. Or, or folly. We see folly in kids. Uh, did you ever try to change a toddler's diaper? I mean, this kid's, he's in a serious need of a diaper change. I mean, his, even the gel pack is full and he's leaking. <laughs> you know, and, and you're trying to change his diaper and he's fighting you over the diaper. He won't cooperate. He, he's saying, you will not change my diaper. You're going to discover I have four arms, six legs. I can roll like I'm on a rotisserie. You will not change me. We see that kind of folly in our children sometimes. Or deceit. Isn't it amazing how kids can deceive you with technically true words? I asked my eight-year-old, did you remember to brush your teeth? He says, yes, I remember. I looked at his toothbrush. This brush has not been wet for three days. I thought you said you brushed your teeth. You didn't ask me if I brushed my teeth. You asked me if I remembered. I did remember, but I never got around to doing it. You know, they're all attorneys, these children. He's going to argue with you and, and maintain that he is right when he told you he remembered. He knew what you were asking. He knew you weren't asking was toothbrush. He never a passing thought today. You were asking him if he brushed his teeth. He answered in a way which was technically true, even though it was designed to deceive. We see these things in our kids, and we ask ourselves sometimes in those late-night conversations, where does he get this from? It must be from your side of the family. <laughs> no one in my family ever behaved this way. I think he's just like your brother. Where does it come from? Jesus tells us in these pas this passage, doesn't it? All these evils come from inside and make a child unclean. Now, if we get a hold of this truth, you recognize if it's out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That means I cannot address behavior in a biblical way and ignore the heart. Because the heart is the wellspring. And, and we want to... We, we want to focus on the heart. Now, in Luke 6, Jesus uses this wonderful analogy. It's one of those very elegant uh, illustrations of Christ. It's simple, it's profound, it's powerful. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, 
his mouth speaks. Now, I want you to imagine this analogy with me. Imagine with me I've got a beautiful apple tree in my yard in Pennsylvania. It, uh, it's, uh, it, it's just finished blossoming. It's, uh, the blossoms are just starting to, to fade, but it blossoms beautifully every spring. But by the time these apples are ready to be eaten, by fall, the apples on this tree cannot be eaten. They're shriveled, they're spotted, they're, you cut them open, they're brown and soft inside. And Margie comes to me year after year. She said, Ted, can't you do something to fix this apple tree so it bears beautiful apples? Like any man here, I want to please my wife. I, I try everything I know to do. I loosen the soil around the tree. I fertilize it. I spray it. I prune the branches. But we still have these blighted, sapless apples. So one day I'm home on a Saturday. I say, honey, today I'm going to fix the apple tree. I go out there, climb into the tree with a ladder, take all the rotten apples off the tree, put them in the compost pile, go to the orchard below our home, buy three boxes of his finest apples, take them up to my tree, I shine them all so they're nice and shiny, I get some string and I hang these apples on the tree, so I decorate the tree with apples. When I'm all done, the tree looks beautiful, I say, Margie, I have a surprise for you. Close your eyes. I bring her to the window that overlooks the tree. Okay, open your eyes. Ta-da! But she looks, this tree looks beautiful. The branches are bowed under the weight of these apples. Each of these apples are shiny, juicy, succulent, gorgeous apples. Now, if I were to do this, this is, of course, all fantasy, but if I were to do this, how would my wife respond to me? She would say, you're a nutcase. This is why we don't like to leave you alone for long periods of time. There's no telling what you might do. I don't, I don't want you to hang apples on the tree. Honey, I wanted a tree that bears apples. But think about our kids, how great the temptation is to hang apples on the tree. Tell your sister you're sorry. Sorry. Could you smile at your sister and say, sorry. Okay, you can go play. I've just hung an apple on the tree, haven't I? It's not a sorry bone in this sorry kid's whole body. And there's so many ways we can do that. We can, we can bribe our children. You can bribe your kids. You know, you can get a little child, a preschooler, to be good or to try to be good for the day just when you promise him a sticker. Now, you can't get an eight-year-old to do anything for a sticker. Did you ever notice that there's incentive inflation? You know, the older the kids get, the greater the prizes have to be. By the time they're teenagers, the things that would motivate them are things you cannot afford. Uh, but, you know, we, we try to bribe them with prizes, incentives, money, or we can shame them. You know, you are such an embarrassment to me. You are such an embarrassment to this family. And we, we heap shame on them. Or we can heap guilt on our kids. You know, it makes me so sad when I see the way you kids fight over your toys. I have no joy in my life. What can I possibly be happy about when my kids are fighting over their toys all day? You know, your mother and I used to talk about how wonderful it would be to have children. <laughs> we had no idea what it would be like. Or we can, uh, we can even bring Jesus into it. You know, Jesus can see right through the roof into the family room. What do you think Jesus thinks of the way you fight over your toys? Not a bad question if you ask it for the right reason, but you know you can ask that question without having any real evangelical objective. You're just rolling out the heavy artillery. You know, they haven't been listening to me all day. Let's lob Jesus at them this afternoon. Maybe that'll fix them. Or we can, uh, we can use emotional, emotional appeals. It makes me so sad when you act this way. It makes God so sad when you act this way. 
or we can threaten them. Do you ever have those nights you put the kids to bed several times, you put them to bed, you hear them in the room, they're running, jumping, diving into each other's beds. You go in and quiet them down. Now look, we had a nice night tonight. Don't go ruining it, okay? I want you just to go to sleep. It's time to go to bed. It's already dark out. I don't want to hear any more noise from here. You go back to your conversation, trying to talk over your day with your spouse, and you hear the kids again, back to their room. What are you doing in your brother's bed? I told you not to get up. I didn't get up. How'd you get in your brother's bed? I went over the dresser, over the windowsill. My feet never touched the floor. <laughs> so you quiet them down, back to your conversation, you hear the kids again, and you find yourself hollering threats in the direction of their room. You don't even want to know what will happen if I come to that room one more time. But it'll be messy, and it's probably going to be on the news. <laughs> now, all those are ways of manipulating the behavior. And, and, and they, all, they all misfire because they don't deal with the real problem. The real problem with my child is not just a behavior problem. The real problem is he has a heart that is strayed from God's ways like a lost sheep. And of course, when I'm manipulating behavior, I'm offering a false basis for ethics because what's the basis for ethics in behaviorism? It's what will get me what I want and avoid what I don't want. What's the basis for ethics in a biblical vision? There's a God in heaven who's good. He's revealed truth to us about how we ought to live both for our good and for his glory. It's a totally different ethic. Or if we uh, another problem is the heart's being wrongly trained. I can manipulate my kids with shame. I teach them to be people who respond out of shame. I can manipulate them with guilt. I teach them to be guilt-based people who respond when they feel guilt. I can manipulate them with pride. You don't want to be a liar. You don't want to be like those people, those liars. You're better than that. I know you're better than that. And I use in pride as a manipulation. But whatever I use, the heart and behavior are so inexorably bound together, whatever I use to motivate behavior trains the hearts of my children. And of course, the gospel will never be central because behaviorism does not require the gospel. There are behaviorists all over the state of Massachusetts that are managing their kids with behaviorism. They don't need the gospel to do that. And the more I depend on behaviorism, on incentives and disincentives to manage behavior, the less the gospel will be the core of my message with my kids. And of course, another problem is it exposes the idols of our hearts, because why is it so important for me to control my children? I want ease, I want convenience, I'm full of pride, I want to look like an effective parent, I want to look successful, I want people to think I'm doing well with my kids. And so we're motivated sometimes by things that ought to, we ought to be repenting of. Now I want you to think for just a second about those apples hanging on the tree. What's going to happen to those apples over time? They're going to rot, aren't they? Why are they going to rot? They're not connected to the life-giving juices of the tree. You see, we can manipulate behavior for the moment with some form of behaviorism, and we get the behavior we want if the incentives or disincentives connect with our kids, but it does not produce lasting change because we're not, we're not, we're, we're just dealing with the superficial external things and it'll never produce lasting change. 
Now, we're in this wonderful situation uh, as God's people. We have tremendous resources for understanding these things. Let me extend that diagram, that first diagram for you in this way. If it's out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, we could say ungodly behavior begins with attitudes that are reflected in the behavior. Godly behavior begins with attitudes that are reflected in behavior. Common problem you see in any home where you have more than one child. Two kids fighting over the same toy. And uh, it's very easy to try to deal with that in various behavioristic ways. We might say, okay, who had it first? And, uh, and we reward the person that had it first and the other person doesn't get it because he had it first. Uh, and, and really, in a sense, we're, tr we're treating it like there's a victim and a perpetrator. But if I have two children fighting over a toy, I don't have an innocent child and a guilty child. I have two children who are full of compulsive self-love. The one child who has the toy is in effect saying to his siblings, I know that you want to play with it. I know you've been waiting for your turn. I know I've been playing with it for a long time. In fact, I was almost done playing with it. But now that I know you want it, you have renewed my interest in this toy. <laughs> and the other child is saying, I know there are a hundred other toys in the house I could play with, but the only toy in this entire house that I'm interested in is the one that you have, and I will do whatever I have to do to get it from you. See, I've got two selfish kids here. If either one of these kids was loving others more than himself, we wouldn't be having the fight. Now, our temptation in these circumstances is to isolate the behavior and to miss the things that are going on inside because it's love of self is motivating this fight over the toy. And the temptation is to see this as a behavior problem to be solved. We focus on the behavior. How can I get them to stop fighting over the toy and start sharing the toy? We ignore the heart. Why would we do that? Well, the answer is obvious. We see behavior. We hear behavior. Behavior requires a response. We, we, we see this as a behavior problem rather than as a heart problem. But it really is a heart problem because it's reflective of a heart that's compulsively self-serving. And our temptation is to ignore the, the heart stuff and to, uh, to try to manipulate the behavior in some way. I've already illustrated some of that guilt, shame, bribery, threats, incentives, disincentives. I was teaching this in the church that I served as a pastor. A guy came to me one day and he said, you know, we had a shut-up jar at our house. I said, what's a shut-up jar? He said, I got so sick of my kids saying shut up all the time. So we're a Christian family. You wouldn't know it if you heard my kids. Shut up, you shut up. I said it first, you shut up. He said, I've told them from now on, whenever you guys say shut up, you can't put a dollar in this jar. Started finding them a dollar every time they said shut up. I said, well, what happened? He said, you wouldn't believe it. In two weeks, we had $100. I said, a hundred dollars, that's a lot of money. Said, yeah, he said, my wife and I were putting it in too. I said, what happened after that? A couple weeks passed, no one was saying shut up anymore. We went out one Friday night, spent the hundred dollars, pizza, movie after the pizza, ice cream after the movie, blew the hundred dollars. What happened after that? He said, you wouldn't believe it, within two weeks they were saying shut up again. I said, you know what, I wouldn't believe it if you told me they weren't. What's going on with these kids, heart change? No, it's a marketplace decision. If I say shut up, it's going to cost me a dollar. I can say drop dead, it costs me nothing. So you just move from the expensive words to the free words. <laughs> if you've watched kids, you've seen this happen. You forbid one particular behavior and just morphs into another behavior that will accomplish the same purpose for them that you haven't thought to forbid yet. And you can never get ahead of it. 
Now, if you think about this with me, if I, if I ignore the, the attitude of heart that's behind the behavior, I manipulate the behavior and get the child to share without really dealing with what's going on inside, what do we call that? Is, is it commendable to do the right thing for wrong motives? Isn't this what Jesus condemns in the Pharisees? Remember how he says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, you're like tombs that are clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. You're like cups, Jesus says, that are clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. And in between those statements, Jesus says these amazing words, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and then the outside will be clean. Jesus is giving us ordered steps. What's a matter of first importance? It's the inside of the cup. Now, we're in this wonderful place as Christians. We have biblical uh, resources for understanding the heart. I mean, all these attitudes of heart you can find in the Bible. You can look these up in your concordance. And I want to encourage you, if you want to get a picture of that, please do, because I want to give you something to do with this list that will enable you to take this home with you and teach it to your kids in ways that are winsome and persuasive. But revenge rather than trusting myself to God, fear of man rather than fear of the Lord, pride rather than humility, and so forth. And, and one of the things I want to encourage you to do is develop a heart notebook with your kids. Get them a, a journaling notebook with blank pages in it and let them decorate the cover and fill it with truth from God's word. Here's how I would suggest you can do it. In family worship, maybe one or two nights a week, work on your heart notebook. Look up, say, five passages that use the word revenge or vengeance. Look those passages up, and uh, one passage a night, write it out in the heart notebook. Do not take revenge, my friends, in Romans 12. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Discuss the passage with your kids. Now, the, you're doing this in non-confrontational times. No one's in trouble. You're not scolding anybody. You're just simply looking at God's word and discussing this idea of revenge. What does revenge look like in an eight-year-old? They'll be able to tell you. Have you ever taken revenge? Has anyone ever taken revenge against you? And get some illustrations. Can you find illustrations in the Bible? Think of people like Joab, who's always going around disemboweling people out of revenge. Uh, and it's bloody, gory, your boys will love it. Um, you know, and uh, look up entrusting yourself to God. Think about it. what does it mean to entrust yourself to God? First Peter 2, Jesus, when he was persecuted, did not retaliate. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Think of Saul, of David, going into the cave. Saul's there. Saul's been trying to kill him. He has the opportunity to take Saul's life. He entrusts himself to God. He doesn't take Saul's life. He waits for God's time to raise him to the, to the, to the throne. So you could unpack this in the ways I've illustrated. You could spend months, maybe even years, in family worship just simply filling that heart notebook with truth about the heart. And the further you go with it, and the more verses you look at, and the more discussions you have in non-confrontational times when no one's in trouble, you're not scolding, it's not a springboard for scolding or for, or for exhorting them or speeching at them, you're just simply looking at the passage, discussing the passage with them, illustrating it, letting them come up with illustrations, making some bullet point notes of the illustrations. Over time, you could give your kids a fund of understanding about their hearts that you could appeal to in times of correction. Oh, this is that uh, revenge stuff, isn't it? We were talking about this the other night in family worship, weren't we? And you can, you can 
help them to understand those things. You know, the, um, where I want to go with my kids is behind this fight over the toy is love of self, and Christ is given so that I might be a person who loves God and who loves others. Christ is, and so I have the symbols of the gospel, the cross, repentance, and faith. I'm not talking about a salvation event where I get me to pray the sinner's prayer. What I'm talking about is the richness and fullness of the gospel, the grace of the gospel we sang about a few minutes ago as we sang in Christ alone, that grace that transforms us, that changes us, that empowers us, that enables us, that, that works within us a motivation and desire to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present evil age. It's that grace of the gospel that is our hope. That's the hope for our kids. That's where I want to be taking my kids all the time. I want to be bringing them to that hope of the gospel. Let me pray with you. Father, we come with uh, thankful hearts for your truth. We pray that your truth would dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish our children. And we pray, Father, that you would give us grace to get beyond just simply managing behavior and give us a vision for shepherding their hearts. We ask this for Christ's great glory. Amen.